by, I wonder, really adventuresome old men, you know. So you think about that, and all of a sudden he says that, and you, and you feel, I find, and everybody else I think as well, that the mind sc- screeches to a halt. Ah, how could that be? He wrote it that other way. And I watched the whole table of people, and the conversation stopped cold right then. And uh, maybe, maybe 15 seconds went by. Maybe. And every, I could I sense everybody was trying to think about, what's the next thing I'm going to say? And then people started to talk again, and they didn't ignore that he said it. But they said things like, you know, it's interesting to think about that there are other points of view and that other people... But you, you just looked about how that startle in the mind wakes people up. I, I was going to tell you a quote from Albert Einstein this morning. I've already told it to you now where he said you can't solve a problem from the sa- in the same level as the level in which the problem was created. So in that everyday consciousness where we tend to have a feeling that the people who vote differently for up from us, we don't like them. They're not our kind of people. They couldn't possibly have a good view because I'm right and they're wrong. How many people think they're thinking that? You know, I... I you know. If I didn't think that, maybe I wouldn't be so passionate about voting and getting people out to vote. Of course, we think the other person's making a mistake, and we get frightened, and we think about what if they get... But here's all of a sudden the situation where he's a person with a different point of view and not an enemy. And it's such a... First of all, it's a wake-up, uh-uh, because we've just made a gaffe, you know, a, a social gaffe. And second of all, with the gaffe puts you in another realm of consciousness, and from that really waking up state, the mind goes from enemy to a really interesting man, par- parrots in the Amazon, donating to Zen Center, who votes differently. Those are just three facts. Interesting man, supports Zen Center, votes differently. How to keep in this tumultuous, tumultuous season, how to keep people on the level of... Um, people with other points of view and not on the level of bad people. I'm not even going to say who's voting what or where here because it's, it's not important. I am determined not to make political opinions and to say anything about anybody because I think it's a, this is the wrong place to have that kind of discourse because it would be insulting to people who think differently than I do in terms of how to vote. More than anything, I think this particular election poses a problem with that because it's more about personalities and less about uh, ideologies. So, uh, so it's more of a problem. But I think it's fair to say one of the things we'll probably talk about in the next months is uh, what, what are I, what are you, what are each of us doing in our regular life to keep us more or less put together so that we remain somewhat uh, of good heart and cheerful. How many people have never been here for this Wednesday morning class before? Here. 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 Well, let's, let's do it this way. How many people have never been in Spirit Rock before for this class? Welcome. How are, what's your name? Barbara, and where do you live? That's wonderful. Please, please come again. 
And what's your name? Jerry. Jerry, wonderful. Please come again. And have you been here before? Both of you women coming in now. You look familiar to me. Are you familiar? What's your name? Susan. Susan, welcome. How about you? Emma. Okay, welcome, welcome. You come on an auspicious day. Who else has never been to Spirit Rock? Chris from Sonoma, it's your first day here. How many people it's their first day at this new room? How many people, put your hand down if you don't think, if you think it's not nice or it's terrible. <laughs> Keep your hand up if you think it's great. That's a better way to put it. Or astounding, yeah. Or uplifting. When we, uh, uh, we had some meeting not not in here. Maybe it was the last time we met in the uh, in one of the other halls saying, okay, now we're going to be in this new hall next week. Uh, Jack said he had some calculation of how many person hours of meditation had been in that old hall down there. The numbers of years by the number of days in the week, by the number of years, by the number of weeks, by the number of days, by the number of people average per week, uh, by the number of hours per day that has somebody in the room sitting there. It came out zillions, really millions of hours, person hours that vibe up the room. And when I've been in other places around the world, uh, and you go into a place, so have you, if you go into Westminster Abbey or... Amiens Cathedral, and there have been really millennia of people coming over that threshold to go to sit in that pew. Don't you think about that when you get in there? That it feels like millennia of people sat in that pew and wished for something. I'm going to talk this morning a little bit about wishing and intention and praying and what we pray for. So here we are. So those are the people who are new. Uh, we have one more thing. I have, on, on general, on Wednesdays, there are a couple of people who are here who are not here today who, if I didn't say the following, would say, you forgot to do. And so Otherwise, uh, because I see Amara is not here. And Amara would say, you forgot to do. Everybody turns to the people around them and says, good morning and hello, and I'm happy you're there. So ready, set, go.
I've been toying with a particular idea, so you can tell me whether you like it. Um, I was going in the next few weeks, and I was starting in a new place, and I started, and I began to think, I really want to re-say the Dharma in a way that I've never said it before, or in a fresher way, or from a new perspective. And there are lots of things. I mean, it's the same Dharma. It's the same Dharma. Uh, but I, it's changed from being 40 years in the United States and being taught by women as, as well as men and non-monastics as well as monastics and more non-monastics and more people who live contemporary lives in the working world. So it is different from how it was. And I, I'll talk a little bit more about how I want to teach differently, Make the, just say the same things in a different way. But I want for us to sit first. And... Uh, Here's how I want to preface that. Uh, I often teach in uh, synagogues and in uh, churches. And in their, um, in their programs for the month, there are certain, uh, there are certain uh, meetings that are characterized as healing services. And people particularly come if they have some illness and they want to pray for being better and they hope that coming together in community and praying uh, will be good for them and it usually feels good to them. And we do the same thing here in a certain way. And what I want to say is I think, and I feel like saying that when I'm in other places, but I don't feel like it's good taste necessarily to say it, that I actually think that every service is a healing service. That every single time that we come here, even if we're not specifically having the thought, may I be healed. It's a healing thing to come in here and sit quietly and, not, and be invited to keep your whole attention just in this very place. So I think I, wa I want to change it to that. And one of the things that I said last week, actually teaching in a church, is I thought that I, I was hopeful that the day would come soon when, when we shook hands with people at the beginning of a session said hello and all that, we would also be able to say to them, uh, to, turn to your neighbor and uh, tell your neighbor, you can tell your neighbor your, friend, your name, but also say, you know what I'd particularly like to be healed about this morning is, and just finish the sentence, you don't have to tell your whole story, I'd particularly like to be healed this morning about my angst, about my... Uh, my uh, son, who's my grandson, whose uh, uh, work has just uh, required that he fly to uh, uh, the Midwest to present his project, and he's very uncomfortable about flying. So today I really am praying that he gets there without any distress. And the other person that I'm talking to might say, you know, I hung up really quickly on the phone with my sister last night, and I know that she was a little irritated at the end. And I want to be in a good mood about calling her up and making amends. And I want to be in a good mood with me about not being annoyed with her that she's so easily irritated. So that's what I'd like to be healed with. We all come with stuff that we'd like to fix up. Anybody's got a little stuff that they'd <laughs> like to fix up? What do you think about that? Uh, you know, maybe we'll go on for today. You don't have to spring it on you. But how would it be, instead of saying, just turn to the person next to you and say your name and hello and how are you, 
But if you had the opportunity to say, this is what I hope gets better with me in this two hours, and they can say, I hope you heal from that, and then they can tell you theirs, and you can say, I hope you heal from that. And then we go on. What do you think about that as a... You like that? You want to start today or next week? Next week, okay. <laughs> Elizabeth gets to work first. No, no that's all right. Uh, because what you do is think it yourself. Today, you're thinking it yourself. We're just not sharing it this week. And in any week to come, please, don't not come on account of being not a sharer. You look, to, you, you look at your neighbor and you say, I'm not a sharer, I'm thinking it. And then they say, good, I hope you heal. That's it. That, you know, either you can share it out or share it in. Is it your mother's birthday yet, Marty? Not till August. Okay, I'm waiting so that we don't miss it. I'm glad to see you, Jean. I'm glad you're here again. Jean is our oldest class participant today at 90, almost 8. And uh, Harrison is our youngest at 17, 18, 19, almost 19, almost 19. Okay, let's sit for a while together. So we have men and women and old and young. And everybody has the same illness that they are always healing from. The healing is healing from confused mind that gets in the way of our making clear judgments, proceeding with kind and helpful actions, and feeling at ease. We had clear minds, we'd feel at ease, we'd know everything is going to work itself out, we'd know we're doing the best we can, we wouldn't feel guilty because we would have addressed any uncomfortable motives in our mind, and we'd be happy. So let's try the instruction of just sit. Let your body relax. Try to sit up a little bit straight so that you're not slumped over. That's really, that's really the only instruction. And it's not because this is a posture class, but it's because it keeps you more awake. And it's also easier for the breath to go in and out of your chest and the rest of your body if you sit up straight. If you can rest in just the experiences that are going on, as you sit, you notice the breath comes into the body and goes out. And often the mind notices that in and out and in and out. And then it, it's as if it says to itself, well, I got that, it's going in and out. Now I'll just let it go in and out by itself and I'll think about any old thing. 
But really, it's not think about the breath. It's just rest, particularly with the breath. Like it's infinitely interesting. Using the breath to pay attention to is just an heuristic device. We choose it because the breath is right there. It's not better than any other place. If you find that the breath is not so comfortable, you could just pay attention to your whole body or perhaps your upper body as it expands, as breath comes in, and then as it closes down, as the breath goes out all by itself. Continuing to sit, if you want to give names to your experience, you can, like breath in and breath out. Or if you want to give names to other things that are happening, like hearing. You might say, that, and it would be right, that the room is very quiet, so there isn't much sound that you're hearing from the room. But the mind is not always very quiet. It makes its own sounds. It makes comments on the presence of absence of thoughts in your room.
you're sleepy, sit with your eyes open. Because one of the great things about this hall is it was designed so wherever you look, you see out the window. And um, the instructions for meditating with eyes open is don't think about what you see, but let what you see just kind of shine in your eyes. Like see it more clearly. Instead of thinking, where did I last see a scene like this? To say to yourself, what else didn't I ever see about this scene? Look at it more exclusively.
Sometimes it happens, and today is one of those days where the room is so quiet and the day outside is so beautiful that uh, I'm, I find that I keep thinking, well, could ring the bell now, but I think, well, it's pretty nice to sit. And then I think it a little bit later, and I think, well, pretty nice to sit. And I remembered that there's... Um, Somewhere a little teaching that says, before you say anything, you should think to yourself, is whatever I have to say right now an improvement over maintaining noble silence? <laughs> so, uh, I don't know if it's an improvement, but it's really nice to sit quietly. But let's really close our eyes and, at this point and take these last minutes to think about who we'd like to mention into the silence with special prayers for uh, consolation for difficulty and prayers of celebration for not difficulty. I really, really am thinking about all of the people related to all of those people who died and are still so wounded from, um, from Sunday mornings really terrible event in Orlando. I'm sure you're thinking about that as well. What else are you thinking about?
If you want to say something and you're fine with it just being heard by the people around you, that's fine. And if you want to say something and you want to say it so everybody hears, just look around and Susan will give you a microphone. thinking about my friend Don who developed a brain fungus and has been in the hospital for two weeks and is finally coming home. Um, his cognitive levels have really declined, but he's um, improving. Completely. And everyone think about his healing. Um, I just learned that a very dear friend of mine is in her final stages of life with stage four patri- pancreatic cancer. And may she pass with ease. Was, um, totally taken by surprise that uh, as you were talking about Orlando really shockingly what I was thinking is that I'm really wanting to pray for Trump because he's just so the words of hate I, I just for the first time I just felt compassion to try and see how wounded someone can be to be so hateful so just wanted to put it out there because I'm blown away <laughs> it came to me Thinking of my clients um, in a hospital where uh, a manager took her life last week and the staff, all the nurses and physicians and managers are suffering a great deal and I wish peace for them, peace of mind and healing. having a hard time right now because of the news that her birth mother took her life. And um, I'm also thinking of my uh, older daughter, Sarah, who just finished her PhD in clinical psychology with her two kids, 45 years old. She worked very hard. Thinking about my brother's family who have been through incredibly, incredibly hard times and um, his youngest son, Avi, who just graduated Berkeley High and is so full of joy and excitement about the future and the fact that how he's 
how the hard times and good times can come together and we have both. May everybody that we mentioned and everybody we thought about but didn't mention, may all beings everywhere who are in difficult times be served and accompanied and soothed by the people who love them. And may everyone enjoy rejoicing in a good moment. Not only rejoice, but really mark that moment as a moment that redeems other painful moments. Moments apart from painful moments. Sounds like a special code to mean end talking now or something. May all beings be peaceful and happy, come to the end of suffering. May we, through our renewed love for each other in the world, go out and make a difference just with everyone that we meet. May we bring them our kindest face and make a difference that way. The people, only the people who haven't been here before don't know that it's not unusual for me to end the sitting. We always do those prayers for the people we're thinking about at the end. And I never finish saying that I think that's the most important thing that we do together. Not that I, not particularly because I feel that if we put out prayers for people in the world that they'll magically, through some intercessionary energetic flow. Maybe that happens, but I don't know. But how good it is for me to hear that the message that I hear that, that everybody who mentions somebody and everybody who doesn't mention and thinks of somebody has people that they care about and that the thing about human beings is we care about other human beings. We have the quality of empathy I don't think we have to take compassion lessons. I think we get born with um, an impulse to help. And that it's one of the things that comes in our neurology if we're not frightened. I think that over the years my, my theology or my philosophy has gotten shorter and easier and easier. And I think that I think that uh, years ago I said something. I said, I guess the whole Buddhism 
in 15 words. When our minds are clear, our hearts are open. And I think that's true, you know. It's a little bit, it's not enough to make a Dharma talk out of. You have to talk longer than that. But I think that that's true. When we're not worried or beleaguered or frightened, which is very hard these days because you can't turn on the television without some strident voice in a, in, in a tone of voice that sounds like the world is coming to an end, saying some, um, saying some new piece of news in a tone of voice that says, can you believe? And so it's really, I, I think we're living in a time where we really owe it to ourselves to keep ourselves informed, but not intoxicated by what's going on. Because it could be, it could be marinating our minds in back and forth vitriol. It's like um, last week we saw films of Muhammad Ali, whose life I really admired. I didn't know so much about him before he died last week. Was that true for you? And then when I heard all the tributes, and I heard about his staunch anti-war position, I began to think really that he took his... A conversion to Islam seriously, and that he was really ardent about becoming a an ambassador for peace. And I really admired him a lot. And they showed also in all those tributes, they showed pictures of him in fights. And I I never did watch particularly. I never sat down to watch a prize fight. I've seen movies where they were saw old newsroom reels in the old days when there were big fights but but it always seemed to me so horrifying that grown up people should just hit each other and that that's a sport and who could hit worse I mean it seems like a I mean it's like a latter day gladiator where people in the best of health get out on horses if, at least if the movies are true and with a lance ride by somebody else and somebody else comes out dead and that's a sport, you know, that uh, that seems so bizarre. I mean, we're, we're getting up to talking about not playing baseball or maybe not hockey because people get concussions. But in those, they got dead. Or they got, and and that, that, that I, I think it was, civilization must be making its way into a, um, a more thoughtful place. We have better ways to... Um, entertain ourselves than watching people beat each other up. I, th- I, th- I feel really badly that this election cycle has so taken over the cable stations that it's just a six-month six prize fight. You tune in to see who punched who the last. And I, I really think, I really uh, struggle with it a little bit because I keep taking vows to not turn it on. And then someone will call me and say, can you believe that they said this or that? Really? And then I already know it, so I turn it on. But then it's got more and more and more. And it's addicting in a, in a, in a particular way. And if, and, if, and if I'm sensitive to myself, I watch my body, which is getting tenser and tenser. So I come here, and then I sit here, and I think to myself, the first major insight of the morning is always, what are you doing turning on the TV? You get the newspaper every day. Read the newspaper at the end of the day when you've done everything that you need to do, when you can read a newspaper on your own time, when the newspaper does not have a tone of voice that could be making it worse. 
I think what's really, uh, uh, what seems to me the lesson always to be learned from Buddhism and the lesson that we can be sharing with each other is um, that, that when the mind is relaxed and, uh, uh, and not frightened and clear, we're fundamentally kind. We could all, if we, at one, two, three, magically put, oh, who knows, what, what's, that, um, what's that hormone, uh, oxytocin. If we made an oxytocin machine that could somehow go all around the globe and, su- and surround it like a, like a cloud and everybody would be breathing in this oxytocin and suddenly stop and feel good and relax and say, you want to go eat lunch or you know, something else to each other, not let's shoot each other or kill each other. Anyway, that's, that's, that's a very um, simplistic view, but I think that I have to keep thinking about it. I told somebody yesterday, um, somebody told me a, a, a wonderful story. A friend of mine who had gone to, well, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to talk about because I really did make a lesson plan and a plan for today and next week and the weeks after that that I'm back. I decided we're in this new hall and I want to start teaching as if we're all starting again, because we're always all starting again. And I want to start again for, with what are we doing and why are we doing it and what's going to happen from it. And I didn't actually understand that very clearly when I started. I actually started to meditate because it was trendy and everybody was meditating in the 70s. It was it was very um, hot thing to do. The Beatles had come to the United States, people had started, they brought their teacher, the Maharishi Yogi. Everybody got interested in transcendental meditation. I got initiated into TM. How many people here got initiated into TM? And some people I know are still doing it. And it's a good thing. It really, really focuses your attention. I did that a little bit, but I wasn't so sure why I was doing it. It wasn't so clear from how they put it out. It was a little bit mystical because you came and the teacher sort of scoped you out and said, okay, your secret mantra, don't tell anybody, is... So how many people who got initiated remember their secret mantra? Yeah, I still remember my secret mantra. I, I didn't like it very much. <laughs> Uh, maybe I would have said it more if I liked it. It wasn't, wasn't soothing to me. But also I couldn't tell what it would do for me and what the, uh, uh, what the Time Magazine version of what it would do for you is it would lower your blood pressure and it would help you with your migraine headaches and it was good for stress-related distress. You'd relax uh, and uh, be sharper. But I didn't have problems so much about that, so I didn't have stress-related diseases or migraines or blood pressure problems. And it was a little boring, and I, and I just wasn't good at it. I, I wasn't good at being um, regular about it because it wasn't particularly pleasant to me. And then I tried lots of other things, mostly not because I was interested in it, but the truth is my husband was interested in it. And I was always interested in trying to be a pleasant companion. So if he went to do things and he came home and said, this is a really great thing, so you should try it. 
you should go. And also, it was exotic, meditating. Uh, and I never thought of myself as particularly exotic. I was also a little too old to be hip. When uh, everybody was being hip, we were a decade older. So I have photos of us at the Panhandle in Golden Gate Park uh, with the Jefferson Airplane or Hatuno or whatever was playing, uh, trying to look hip, kind of in our clothing. But we had four children under the age of six with us and coloring books and coloring on the floor. So you can't be too hip with four children and you can't be stoned with four children under the age of six. So we were well-behaved faux hippies and we went around, on, we you know, walked on, uh, we walked through the Haight-Ashbury and we bought beads and we bought pins, but we weren't really there. But what people were doing really was they were getting, they were meditating, everybody was meditating. I went to parties where people would be sitting and meditating in the middle. You think, this is weird, why doesn't that woman stay home and meditate if she wants to meditate? She doesn't have to come sit in a party in a weird way in the middle, but... People did weird things, just, I can do it different. So I went to a lot of stuff and it didn't appeal to me and I, I went to, uh, after some years, I, I was by that time my Hatha yoga teacher, which is a little weird from Marin County, but not very weird. Now it's so unweird, it's on every street corner, a yoga studio. And I actually got to be teaching yoga at the College of Marin, but it wasn't weird and I didn't, teach it in a weird way. But, um, and, it be, and it became, as you know, a very famous and popular thing in this country for various reasons. Anyway, I, uh, my husband went on a mindfulness retreat. He came home. He said, this is great. Why don't you do it? I did it. I thought it was great. And I didn't leave. And then I went for decades of short retreats, a week, sometimes two weeks, because I couldn't go to India or get a teacher because I had those same four children and that same husband, so I stayed home. But it took me a long time to actually get the clarity about what I was doing. I was going on retreats. I was sitting. I didn't have such good concentration, so mostly I thought about things. And I actually love thinking. I'm a very thinking type of person. If you give me something to think about, I muse about it. So I didn't mind going away from home for a week or more and sitting on my own. And if somebody said, why are you doing it? I don't know what I would have said. I was just doing it, everybody was doing it. And I like going away from home and I like the food and I like the teachers. And uh, my teachers were Jack and Joseph and later on Sharon Salzberg and some other people. And by and by, which the by and by means a few years later, maybe three or four or five years later, I really began to take seriously the injunction to really, really pay attention. Don't just sit there uh, and relax. So I, re I began in the tradition of the Mahasi Sayadaw to do breath meditation, really attention to the breath, which has a special course of action or hope for course of response. It's presumed that if you do that, You'll, your concentration will get sharper and sharper and steadier and steadier. And you'll be able to see in a new and clearer way that things, that these particular truths, that everything passes, that really was one of the first things. See, who doesn't know that everything passes? 
You know, my, my grandson is almost 19. I was, yesterday he was born. Everything passes. The, uh, the, uh, the Lakers game uh, is in the past. The one in the future that seems so big is going to be in the past pretty soon. And it'll be either X or Y. And there'll be all this flurry about whoa, And it's going to pass into the history books and people will forget it. And most people won't even know about it. So, you know, but things come up and they pass. And the idea was if you realize that things passed, you didn't get so upset about any particular thing. You say, okay. This is going to pass. I'm in the dentist. It's extremely uncomfortable. I'm very tense about it. But in an hour, I'm going to be in Starbucks having a latte. So I'll just think about the Starbucks and the latte. This is not going to happen forever. If you went in the, in, went in the dentist and you signed a form that I understand this might accidentally go on forever, you won't. You won't. You won't. You wouldn't go. You know. So, the, but you, you take it for granted that you have to come out of there. So the mind is not frightened by this is forever. You have a bad depression. There's a book called The Midnight Demon. Noonday Demon, the Noonday Demon, about how a depression falls on you. And most people who use the word depressed, I feel so depressed, actually feel sad. But depression is its own kind of illness where really, really the mind is not workable. And the great fear in depression is that the mind has no energy and you think, I'll never get better. So it's a combination of the alarm about how discomforting it is and the alarm about it will never end. But everything ends. I'm very careful about saying that, though, because sometimes people tell me I have had such a terrible, great grief and I'm going to end before the grief ends. And they mean it. And I really want to leave space for that. What I mostly say is, I, I think that might be true, but the, um, the agony of just finding it out will pass. It, it'll change. You will have grief always, but it'll change. There's probably people in this room who lost a sister, a child, a brother. You, know, you, you never are without grief about that. But it changes. So that, I began to think, and this is, this is actually going into the whole theory of why I'm going to start, not from looking for seeing the truth, that things change. Sure they do, but, they, but then you get it more and more, and it's a certain relief, that things get worse, that our suffering arises, not because things happen that are unpleasant, but that things happen that are unpleasant and our minds can't stand them. It's a, but it's really central kind of understanding that it isn't what happens that makes us angry or upset. It's how our mind meets that. So always people say, well, what do you mean? He said such and such, or he did such and such, and, uh, you know, I got angry. Who wouldn't get angry? Everybody. But the thing is, it's really, it's really a stretch, especially now with the news cycles, to say, I have a choice now. I can get angry and call a few friends and whip myself up and say, can you believe what that candidate just said? Or I can say to myself, wow, I'm really frightened that this person might get to be president. What can I purposely, what can I do to assuage my fear about this if I don't want my mind 
to suffer so much and if I don't want to take on hatred in my own mind. And the third thing that the, that, uh, the early texts say is if you pay attention just even to the breath or to anything, that paying attention will lead you to discover that everything happens because it has a preceding cause, not one, but many. And so that everything that happens is the only thing that can happen. It's, we're also predetermined. It's not predestination, but it is predetermined. If I look at one of my grandchildren, uh, uh, let's, say, let's say I look at my grandson, Eric, who uh, looks a lot like me, or he did anyway when he was a younger boy. And I look at him, and he looks like, uh, he looks like my son, Michael, who's his uncle, not his father, but the genes move around, you know, they're in everybody. And I think about, he, would look, he wouldn't look like me, or he wouldn't even be there, Eric, had not Marco Polo crossed uh, and made trade routes into the Orient when he did, because the trade routes opening up into the Orient changed the economic climate of Western Europe, which caused difficulties in different social systems, and the underclass who uh, could not get into commerce, like the Jews, really needed to leave and go to the, uh, the new colonies in the United States. And so four people from four different places, uh, two men and two women, went to the United States, met each other, and got married, and had a son and a daughter who met each other and got married and had a daughter that they named Sylvia, and then uh, other people in, actually people in Sweden did things and people in uh, uh, Costa Rica did things, Nicaragua, all people living their lives so that it ended up that Eric's parents were connected to, uh, came from Sweden and came from me. And so the fact that he looks like me is a result of this complicated karma that has to include not only the genes of the world, but the history of the world, and who went where when. And Europe will now get mixed up in a new and, I think, better way with all this immigration. We are mixed up in a new and, I think, better way with all of the immigration. If we hold it together and we begin to look around and say, you know, we really are better off. We mix up the genes, we start to get a healthier gene pool. The things happen because of lawful events. My, my, I, I always say my, my, my great friend and teacher, Joseph Goldstein, uh, who speaks with a very New York accent, uh, likes to say the line, it's a lawful cosmos. But when I first heard him say it, it sounded like he was saying it's an awful cosmos. <laughs> and uh, I heard him saying that at a time that I was particularly melancholy in my own mind state. And I thought, oh, he's right. Then I realized <laughs> that he, uh, he, he was saying it's a lawful cosmos. When things happen, when your best beloved is on the beach in Phuket and there's a tsunami there, it's not because of anything else other than that person was in Phuket while there was a tsunami. It's not because the tsunami was the wrath of God or that the person 
was destined to be there because it was written that they should be there. Things happen because of other people, other things. I think of it always close to home. When the uh, when there was that last big earthquake, and the Bay Bridge had a piece that fell out of it uh, as people were going home when the earthquake happened. There was the last car that went past that section, went past, and then the section fell out and cars fell in. And, you know, who was in the last car before it went by? I met a man once who was sitting in row six of a plane that went off the runway at, oh, at, at, at Logan and came to some sort of a screeching emergency stop at the end and the plane broke and it actually split uh, just in front of the wings and the people in row five were still sitting in their seat and the people in row four and three and two and one of the pilots were all ahead and there was a fire. But these people were okay. And so you think about that. Things happen not because of personal reasons. They just happen. Do you remember a while ago, I think about <laughs> I suddenly have in my mind these tapes, uh, these talks get to get filed on Dharma Seed tape library. So there was a little while ago that there started to be a, um, a bumper sticker that said "shit happens," and it was very uh, trendy to put that on your bumper sticker, uh, like um, I don't know, smart to say that. But in a certain way, difficult things happen to everybody. And the way that I think about it, I was driving here this morning and I heard about the child who was captured by an alligator yesterday. Did you, did you hear about that? Two-year-old child was wading in the water at Disneyland in a pool outside the Disneyland Hotel in a lagoon on the water. So people wade there. And there haven't been alligators there before. And his father was right there, and an alligator grabbed him and ran away with him. As in yesterday, and he's gone. And, you know, one of the things that happens is we think to ourselves, you know, we are just terribly vulnerable. Terribly vulnerable. You don't know. Here are people in good health. They're in Disneyland. They're having a little time paddling in the water in a water that's been deemed safe for everybody. It said don't swim, but he was walking around. So, so he wasn't swimming. No, you're right. There was a sign that said don't, don't swim. But there wasn't a sign that said watch out for the alligators. So. <laughs> but the reason I'm telling you that, it's a horrible thing. But I, I think that, that what I have discovered about this it, it's been really helpful to me to discover it's a lawful cosmos because there's a way in which I think things really do happen. Not for reasons. Not for reasons. Like the, the, the investigator, or not for a reason, but for multiple reasons. The investigators are saying, well, you know, uh, of that um, nightclub massacre, really, are saying it's because of this, it's because of that. It's because of everything. It's because of everybody's background, because of this person's background. Maybe it's more because of the availability of, of, of guns so easily. But also there were some people in and some people out. 
to say why is not as helpful, I think, now as it is to say what next. What should we do? What should we do? That we could say. That might change the future of history. What should we do might be uh, have gun laws. We have ridiculous gun laws or lack of in the whole world. And we have monumentally more violence than any other country in the whole world. We could have otherwise. I think though that really the point I want to take from this is that it's possible if you really look at your life or life itself and think, wow, it's a really chancy thing, this life. We're all vulnerable. The first noble truth that life is suffering, which I really uh, understand more and more every passing day, does not mean life is horrible. It just means life is life. And there's a lot of distressing things happen because the, th the fact that pe things exist and then they don't exist mean that we're always in a state of either getting losing something or getting worried about losing something or uh, mourning the loss of something. You get yourself all together. I, I was so terribly struck some years ago by the car that ran up on the on the sidewalk in Santa Barbara in the first week of school in a, in a fall semester and killed four new, four new students in the school. And I thought, you know, six months ago when those students got their acceptances, they were so happy. And had they gotten rejected, they would have been so unhappy. And had they been rejected, they would have gone to another school and they wouldn't have been there. Or... Had the driver been on another street, they would have been on that street, in that school, happy and be well. Everything is so complex. The Buddha said understanding karma is one of the six in unfathomables, unfathomables, uh, that you can't figure it out. But I think that the point of talking about it is not to shrug and say, what can you do, is to say, for me, is to say, that being true, it's all vulnerable. What can I do so that I suffer the least and other people suffer the least right now and forever? And I think the answer to that, for me, is I really want to cultivate as much as knowledge and wisdom, which doesn't necessarily make me kinder, I want to start with the cultivation of kindness and work back from that. Normally, when you think about the uh, equation, you start with, I'll meditate, so I'll see clearly, and then I'll have insights, and I'll see that everything is temporal, and uh, that uh, fighting with what's already there is extra, it just creates suffering, that uh, the inability to integrate what's happening in some way is itself the cause of suffering, and then to see that things happen because other things happen in ways that are completely unknowable by human beings. We could even know all the bits and pieces that went into anything, but we wouldn't have the answer. And even if we had the answer, if we knew every single reason why that child was 
taken away by the alligator. The child would still be taken away by the alligator. I have to not know the answer for why did this happen. I think we have to know the answer to what should we do now so that we live okay. How are we going to heal ourselves? How will we not lock ourselves in our house and never let our children out of our sight? You know, because sometimes I've thought that. We have to not go anywhere and not do anything. For a while, I, uh, years ago when people were talking uh, to psychics who would tell them, I know when, I can tell when I'm getting onto a plane if it's not good. And then I remember a period of time, this is when New Age was still pretty woo around the 80s maybe. And I remember going to a lecture by a psychic intuitive who said, uh, oh, and yes, last week I went, I was getting on a flight from X to Y, and as I walked down the, uh, uh, what do you call it, that uh, gangway or whatever it is, huh? Jetway. Jetway. I walked down the jetway, and all of a sudden I had a weird feeling, so I knew this plane was going to have an accident. So I went back to my. So I went back. I got my money back, and I flew on a lighter plane. And that plane, in fact, crashed. So that was such a bad thing to tell. Maybe her, her experience was exactly that. Maybe she had that experience in ten other places, and it didn't happen. But once you hear a story like that, after that, I, every time I'd get onto a jetway, I'd be walking down towards my plane. And I'd have the thought, uh, oh, she had a bad feeling on this jetway. Now I have a bad feeling on this jetway. Maybe this bad feeling is the same bad feeling that she had on the jetway, and I should turn around and go back. No, but then I'd have to go on another jetway. And then, so this must be the end. The thing is, it's, who knows? Nobody knows. The only thing that we have, if we have to go, we could, stay, we could stay home our whole life, but we want to live a full life and do things. Go in a jetway, you say, I have a funny feeling. Okay, a funny feeling. And either it'll be whatever, but, and to hope that it doesn't. But I, I was thinking so much. On, that, on, on a particular flight where my flight seemed to be, in fact, make, making an emergency landing. It doesn't seem to be. Making an emergency landing, and uh, uh, everybody crouched over... Uh, Everybody crouched over with their pins. Everybody in a do, ever done that, where they say, take off your glasses, take off your glasses, put your pens out of your pocket, put them away, take your shoes off, crouch over. It's pretty scary. Um, but the thing is, I, I was not thinking about, may it not crash. I decided that I would do my, phrases of... Uh, uh, May uh, May Seymour be happy. May Michael be happy. May Liz be happy. May Peter be happy. May Emmy be happy. I just named all my people, and you just, and then I went to my people, my children, my grandchildren, their partners, their friends, and I just kept doing wishes, wishing for other people's wellness. Uh, may all, and finally you use up. May Jack. May Sharon. May. Joseph, all my teachers. In the meantime, planes going down, down, down. In the meantime, I, we're, we're re-landing back in Chicago. 
and they have all those fire trucks lined up along the uh, runway with foam that they're going to foam if they need the foam. And I'm doing my, may I, may I be happy, may Seymour be happy, may Michael be happy, may Will be happy, may. And the plane landed and nothing happened. And I wasn't too frightened I, and it worked. I think it works for two reasons. I think it works because now that I'm thinking about it in this moment, I hadn't planned to talk about it. I think it worked for two reasons. First of all, I gave my mind something to do, so it was not, didn't have any room to be doing, ah, what are they going to do without me? What are they going to do? The news will be so upsetting. Da, 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 da. I didn't do that whole story, just may they be happy, may they be happy, may they be happy. Also, it's a nice thing to say. And also, it connected me to the truth that I know a lot of people in the world that I care about. Especially if I say, may all beings be peaceful and happy, I connect myself to all the beings in the world. And then, you know, all beings are jeopardized and vulnerable all the time. You can cross the street. In San Francisco this week, a couple of people got killed crossing the street in San Francisco. We are very vulnerable. Which comes to a half hour later, where I wanted to start. (laughs) Because those are all true, we can do the route of sitting and with your meditation aiming at let me discover what's true and then my natural compassion will emerge or you can do the practice of starting by really generating and cultivating and augmenting general compassion and work backwards with it why not instead of making compassion the fruit of wisdom make compassion the cause of wisdom by being at the antidote to um, alarm in the mind and the antidote to antipathy. But yesterday, uh, one of the there was I was listening to the news in my car, and they said that um, the blood banks, especially in Orange County, are full with donations because everybody rushed out to give blood. Um, And somebody asked this person who had called in and said that, why do you suppose that uh, in times of tragedy people rush out to help? Also, a million dollars has been sent by people just sending donations to help out in any way for anybody's use. county has given a, uh, uh, a cemetery to be used by anybody who wants to use it, anything that anybody wants. And the question was, why do you think people do that? Uh, rise up with their own goodness and generosity just after a terrible thing happens. And uh, the responder said, and I think it's true, they really want to remind themselves that people really are fundamentally good in the wake of some demonstration of someone who's fundamentally not good, fundamentally with evil intent, it's so frightening to think there are people running around in the world with evil intent. I personally think there are. I think there are people in the world with evil intent. I I wouldn't even call it evil intent or evil intent based on the fact that they have, they're sick, they have bad wiring. I don't think that human beings 
uh, are born with good or evil. I think like human beings, like other animals, are born with wiring. And most of our wiring, for most people, is cordial and uh, collegial uh, uh, and com- companioning. I think about the word companioning species. You know, people tend to group together into communities in the history of the world. There are some hermits who live up in caves and people who stay by themselves. But most of the time, people make themselves a family or they make themselves a community or they make themselves uh, a bridge club or they make themselves a hiking club or they make themselves people that they hang out with because they like to. We're companionable. People are generally touched by the, uh, by the uh, extraordinariness of other people, that you see somebody, you see uh, Steph Curry throw a basket and have it go in when he seems to be, you know, he's out behind the third three-point line and he doesn't seem to be looking, and it goes in. Everybody gets excited. I get excited. I don't have anybody in my family who ever played basketball. We're all way too short. Nobody ever got involved in basketball. I don't watch the basketball all year long, but I watch the playoffs because they're so beautiful. And then you feel somebody has done 10 million hours of practice. I think about that when someone's standing at the free throw line. I don't understand how they ever miss because I feel they must have thrown that 50 billion times in their life. You know, they must have that movement right. And that people did that. It picks up your mind. It's not true. Do you think that? How many people watch? And there you go. (laughs) Uh, And it makes you feel good. It makes you feel bad when they're losing. I don't even know them, and I feel bad when I... But but because I know there's a community out there who wants them to win. I walked... And and, um, I came out of the opera house the other day, and the opera house is all... uh, yellow and gold, uh, uh, blue and gold in the colors of their uniforms. Yesterday, it was probably um, in the color of uh, uh, a rainbow. It was, the Eiffel Tower was in the color of a rainbow yesterday, and there was a huge vigil out in Paris. So people want to say something. They want to do something. We're moved. I think we are a, a, not everybody is a loving person. Omar Satine was a very, Matine was a really disturbed person. But I, I think that we go out to try to do something good with other people doing good, like blood, as if we could somehow mitigate that and somehow convince ourselves that it's not, it's, it's not false that human beings are kind, that you can count on most people you fall down the street, most people pick you up. Most people pick you up. I started, I thought to myself, well, okay, I want to start, instead of starting on the the discovery of wisdom, I started on the cultivation of the Brahma Viharas. How many people know the word Brahma Viharas? How many people don't know the word Brahma Viharas? Ta-da! Terrific! Wonderful! So, a Vihara... Is a, is a dwelling. When uh, I ask somebody, when you were in Delhi, where did you live? They say, oh, I lived in the Burmese Vihara. 
it means like I lived in the Burmese club where the Burmese immigrants there made a place and they all lived there together in community and I lived there with them. So a, a, a vihara is a place where people live. Uh, in the text, a vihara is called an abode. Uh, the divine abodes, which is what Brahma viharas are, are four special mind states. And they're called divine abodes because they're the one, most wonderful places where the mind could live. It could live wholeheartedly loving all living beings. How many times in your life can you remember that you had nothing in your, in your mind but loving something? When we were so filled with love. Tell me, tell me a moment. Can't think about anything else. What else? You have a child come out of you, and the world is absolutely all right because it's completely all right. Because, uh, among other things, your mind is full, your brain is full of oxytocin, so everything looks marvelous, and your baby is the most beautiful, and and she or he is out safely, and you're all right. What else? Yeah. At the end of a retreat. I feel good when I walk in the door here. Hmm? Backpacking in the Sierra. You know, it was interesting. I had lunch with a friend of mine yesterday. Uh, so I love this friend of mine. He's a great guy. We meet periodically and we talk about where he's been and where I've been and what he's reading, what I'm reading. We're having lunch in the rustic bakery. He was telling me about a new practice he's doing called Dharma Inquiry. So I don't know about that. I've been learning about it. And he said, for instance, people sat in dyads like we are here, and um, they asked each other, do you have any uh, negative feelings? Was there anything that's bothering you or negative in this moment? What is it? So I said, well, no, in this moment I feel completely content. I'm here with you. I'm very fond of you. I like the rustic bakery. Everything is good. As I'm saying that, the thought comes in my mind, but I really would like a cup of coffee with this. And I, I've already gotten my sandwich, but I didn't get a cup of coffee. So, and, and in that moment, I thought to myself, look at that, what the Buddha said about desire being endless. It's true. It's already perfect. I'm in good health. He's in good health. We're sitting and talking. Really love this person. We have a nice conversation. I certainly wasn't consumed with the coffee idea, but when he said, is there anything negative in this moment? I said, look around, look around, look around. I said, oh, I really would like a cup of coffee. So I went and got a cup of coffee. But you can't, it's hard to think about a moment that's sustained that you have nothing but goodwill. Everything is okay. That would be a moment of metta. A moment of compassion here are the four divine states that the mind could live in. It could live in total goodwill. May all beings be happy and come to the end of suffering. It could live completely filled with compassion. So that you said earlier, what's your name? I forgot. Nama. Nama said earlier, I felt compassion for Mr. Trump. 
which uh, somebody else just said it's a stretch. <laughs> no, but and you know, I, I and I think that's all true. I really don't want to make political statements, but I think um, I don't feel compassion when when I feel frightened. And it's hard not to feel frightened when someone is saying or putting out material that I think is dangerous. But when I think around it, that's not going to happen because this country is not going to do that. Um, Then I feel sorry for him. Uh, uh, I feel compassion for him. He's like an out-of-control three-year-old, you know. I'm frightened that the out-of-control three-year-old might, might take over the country, but I hope not. But if I only felt compassion, how many people here are in a relationship with a person, a partner, a child, a parent? That person ever get on your nerves? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Because they do X or they do Y that annoys you so much, doesn't it? And you have a feeling in your mind, they're doing that same thing again. It annoys me so much. And what's more, they know that that annoys me. Er, and the mind is, and mind is a little bit self-righteous. Here I knock myself out so much on behalf of that person. And they still do that thing, even that they know it annoys me. It stays like that until I think to myself, you know, that person can't do another thing than that. That's the only way they can be. No, no, they could have got better because they knew. If they could have, they would have. You know? Mostly when I talk with people about this, if we could have, we would have. We all know what the other person wants. We just don't do it because we're stuck in something to prove a point or X or Y or something or other. But when my mind can say, ah, too bad this person's stuck, that's really lovely compassion. Mudita is the third of those divine abodes. Mudita is the absence of any envy or jealousy. Anybody here ever feels envious? <coughs> ever feels jealous? You know, I went to visit a friend of mine in, uh, uh, in uh, Portland, Maine, the last three weeks while I was gone. And she has, a, she has a beautiful house on the sea, north of Portland, and a huge garden in the back. It's the perfect garden for me. I used to garden. I had a garden as big as this one time, which was a very big garden, but it's got a high deer fence. And she lives in New York all the winter and spends four or five months in the summer. And prior to her arrival, her garden people have come and cleaned up the raised beds that she's got there and put in new topsoil and have all kinds of preparations for her to come with all her new plants and all her seeds. How many people here have a garden a garden like that? It's the best thing. How many people are still gardening a garden like that? Oh, I'm so glad for you. Really, I am. Because I... Huh? Uh, here's my story. I get up there, and she says, okay, tomorrow we're putting in all these seeds and all these plants. And it's great, because I loved it. I used to do it. And we go out there. 
He has all these plant beds. So he has all these seeds, and I like you put in the carrots here, and these carrots here, and those carrots here, and those carrots here, and this there, and this, and then that, that. So it was maybe an hour or two of work, and the beds are a little raised. So she said, here's one of these rubber mats that you can put over your knees against there, so you can lean on this uh, wooden railroad tie while planting. So I'm sort of squatting on that railroad tie and planting and I'm enjoying it so much. I'm thinking, I wish I still had that garden. I really wish I still had that garden. I wonder if I could have a more raised garden in my backyard here. Maybe it could be bigger or not such a big enterprise, but I'd be able to... Oh, see, I'm so old. It's no fun getting old. Your mind can do all kinds of stuff. It can really make yourself into a mess. So I do that and I, and I put in all the stuff couple of hours of putting in the seeds, it's not that hard, watering. Get up the next morning, I can't hardly stand up out of the bed. My legs are so cramped, and my back is so hurting. And in all that saying, oh, I wish I had, I wish I had, I wish I had, I forgot the information that I'm 30 years older than when I had that garden. And I have not got the kind of body that can crouch like that for two hours and feel good afterwards. And then I thought, so right away, the whole lust for the whole garden. I, had, I was going to say I had garden lust when I first saw it. I did, look at this, Susan's got a garden, I don't have one, I want one. And the next morning I wake up and I say, Susan has a garden, Susan is way younger than I am. I don't have a garden, I am old, and I'm not, I can't do it. And the whole lust went away, for one thing, for the garden. And then it changed over into how glad I am that Susan has this garden, because she's probably loving it. And I had that experience, and that's it. And uh, I, I teach a lot these days where I'm teaching older people, and they say things like, well, when you get old, new things are equally pleasant. That's not true, actually. <laughs> I mean, I, I, some of the, the things I can do are not new. I still go to the opera a lot, but that was, and it's equally pleasant. But I just didn't suddenly discover some new thing that replaces a former thing. You just do without the former thing. I wanted to tell you about. Uh, here it is. I wanted to tell you about these. Oh, the fourth of these four. So. Mudita is, uh, uh, is uh, the opposite of jealousy or envy, saying, it's wonderful that Susan's got this garden. May you rejoice in it. May you enjoy it. May you send me pictures of it to remind me of when I had such a garden. You can't just do that because you do it, because in your mind you think, I don't really feel this. But when I got up the next morning and I couldn't move my legs, I really felt this. May Susan enjoy this garden. I'm not going out one more minute in this garden. I'm not planting one more bush. I can hardly stand up. So how am I going to get out of planting? Because they had a second day of planting. Planned. I'm finished with the planting. So. But to really be able to say, this is it. That, that's just really it. And then really to enjoy it. Um, I went to the opera the other night, which I do enjoy, and I'll still enjoy older even. And uh, I came away with the words that I wanted to put into this talk in one way or another. 
By the way, we just did three of the four Brahma Viharas. The fourth one, which I want to spend a lot more time on next week, is equanimity. The uh, loving kindness and compassion and mudita and equanimity. And usually you teach them that way from the beginning, loving kindness, uh, compassion, mudita, equanimity. I'm going to teach them backwards, starting with equanimity, because I think, even though that's not the standard way to teach, that that's the that that's the crucial thing for the mind to the mind to get a grip and somehow balance itself. Like when I get up the next morning and I can't stand up and I'm in a lot of pain, I say, what's the matter with you? You can't do that anymore. And you can either get annoyed at yourself, why did I do that? That was so stupid. Da, 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 da. I said, I did it because I felt like I didn't know I'd be this, uh, uh, I'd have this reaction. And it's fine. I, I had... I have photos of cupboards of stuff that I not only grew, but I froze and that I pickled and that I canned. And I did that. That was then, and this is now. That's all. I love taking care of little babies, but I'm long past having little babies. I don't even have little grandbabies anymore. That was then. This is now. You do something else now. And you don't say, I don't feel a little wistful about it. I do feel a little wistful about it. There's a lot of things I feel wistful about. I feel wistful that the water isn't clean and that the ozone layer and that we're on the brink of playing very dangerous war. I feel wistful about a lot of things. So uh, my small garden lust is a very small part. If I want to spend any fruitful time being wistful, I could think about how can it work for the campaign. But anyway, that, that really brings the mind to the fourth place, which is equanimity. This is what's happening now. Let's see what's happening next. I love that line. That line comes from Gilb Fransdahl. He said the, the uh, um, definition of equanimity is being able to say, this is what's happening now, like this. Let's see what happens next. I love that. I really love that. The reason I love it, if I always knew the first line of it, this is what's happening now, is equanimity. But let's see what's happening next. It's like such an encouraging thing for my mind to hear. It reminds it that there's a next. You know, that this isn't the end of it. There's a next. Let's see what happens next. Doesn't mean the next is going to be great, but something. Let, let's see what happens next. It's interesting. Let's see what happens next. So I, I went to uh, see Don Carlo. I always feel like I'd like to take you to the opera with me because I get such a kick out of the fact that the plots are tellable in 30 seconds. They're all a super drama illustrating in some way how people who could have had a good life mess it up (laughs) with uh, their own greed, unrecognized greed, hatred, and delusion. In this case, and it's actually based on uh, apparently a fairly true story about the daughter of the king of France and the son of the king of Spain who were more or less contemporaries and played together as children on some occasions and was understood that they would be betrothed or maybe they were engaged to each other when they were 14 or 10 or not yet married to each other. But time went by, and the father of the king of Spain's wife died. So the king of Spain decided, no, I'd like to marry that daughter. So, um, so first of all, this is at the point where all of this was written before we talk, talked about 
uh, women's equality. So the news comes triumphantly into the hall. The Spain is ready to make peace after a long war with them and everybody's hallelujah. And it depends on the princess of France marrying him. And of course she's in love with this other guy. And, she, and who's standing right there, she said, no, no, I love you, I don't want to marry your father. And all the populace, this huge number of choir people on the stage, all singing, princess, end this war, end our suffering. It's very, it's very moving. Uh, and uh, she says, she thinks about it, and she looks at him, you can see... And she says, see, I'll do it. And see, all of a sudden, that's very touching. Then I think about when women were chattel, and you could just sell women, and you could trade women, you could trade land for women. So you could get really tied up in thinking about that. If if I take my women's consciousness into an opera, I'm usually unhappy by the first (laughs) act. So you have to say, just listen to the singing. They, They wouldn't write an opera like this anymore. But... Anyway, they, they one, of this, one of them saying, one of the things they say to encourage her is the, uh, I, actually, this, is, this comes a little later, so I'm going to leave that, but they say something about good for you, you've done the right thing. Uh, and in the end, five acts later, they're about to die, and they say to each other, we'll see each other later. They're both going to die, and the father is going to die, and the father's father is going to die, uh, or, but is, uh, is not on the stage ever. He's in some monastery. We thought it was, the voice was supposed to be from another world. Maybe that grandfather was dead, because an ethereal voice comes out when these protagonists say, we'll meet each other in a better next world. And we'll love each other there. And this voice sings out, the same troubles that you have here will be with you in the next world. (laughs) So that's discouraging. But uh, then it says, but actually I think it, I, I would like to take that line up next week because I actually think the problems I have in this moment, the suffering I have in this moment, unless I deal with it, I'll have tonight and tomorrow, and I think those are all next next worlds. I think I am reborn into suffering. Every time my mind says I hate it, that I am reborn into suffering. I really have no safety in this world at all, unless I have a mind that doesn't get reborn into suffering. And the only way it can do that is if it fills itself with so strongly with the energies of those Brahma Viharas, after that line sings out, whatever troubles you have in this world, you have the same troubles in the next world, the only freedom from suffering is closeness to the divine. So uh, they say it as closeness to God, but I am interpreting it as closeness to the divine. And I beca- I'm interpreting it as that because I think that when the mind is filled with uh, loving kindness or compassion or uh, goodwill, empathic joy, 
or equanimity, which it has to have, otherwise it couldn't be filled with all these others, that it actually is the antidote to all um, jealousy and envy and despair and grief because it doesn't, it doesn't mean they're not there. You have those feelings, but you have them there accompanied by a, a super layer of wisdom that says, it, of course you're sad, dear, because this is very sad, but it's happening. And of course you're sad about this because it would have been lovelier if you had had this, not had this. It doesn't say that you rise above it and don't feel it. I've, uh, I've been telling people for some years that the story of Kisagatami, the woman who comes to the Buddha with her um, child who's died and comes and says, uh, I heard that you're a miracle worker. Please restore my son to life. And the Buddha says, okay, I will, but you have to bring me a mustard seed from a house where no one has ever died. And of course she rushes here and there and then she comes back in despair but also in resignation because she realizes there are no houses with mustard seeds where no one has ever died because everybody dies. And in the best translation I know of that story, it's explained that, of course, the Buddha knew that she was going to discover that there were no mustard seeds and that he sent her out on that not to humiliate her, oh, what an idiot I was, I thought I'd find it, but actually to have her be in the contact of people who had lost people so that, first of all, she could be consoled by them, and second of all, she could realize that she's not alone, that everybody has that stuff sometimes. And if I were writing a contemporary version of Kisagatami's story, The Mustard Seed, I have actually written this into a book, I would say my preferred ending would be that she comes back and says, I get it and he's gone, and now I want to be a disciple of yours. And that he would say, that's great, you could be my disciple. And then they would sit and cry for a while together. That I don't want to leave out that part. Because you have wisdom and understanding doesn't mean you don't have a vibrant body, isn't racked by grief, and doesn't need to cry. So, one more thing, and then we'll go a little bit late, but I'll tell you. Um, my son, uh, my eldest son, just got back from um, riding his bike down to Los Angeles in uh, seven days for the AIDS ride. And uh, it's the ninth time he's done it and uh, collected $90,000 now for AIDS research. And every year he brings me back... Um, a plastic Easter egg that um, comes with a... Um, oh, you can see a picture of it here. It's a, pl it's a plastic Easter egg, and it, it's closed, and it comes with um, a little note in it and a lifesaver uh, that's wrapped in cellophane. And every rider, and there are like 2,500 riders on the morning of the last day, they get up and they go to their bicycles where they all are. And on every single bicycle, there's a, a plastic bag tied on with an Easter egg in it, with these things in it. 
And the person who puts it there is a man named, who has become named the Chicken Lady, who distributes these on the last night and people find it. And it, actually, if you go online and look up the Chicken Lady on uh, Google, you'll find it, or on YouTube. But the, the note this year, which is the note every year, is li that comes in it is life is too short to wake up with regrets. Believe everything happens for a reason. If you get a chance, take it. If it changes your life, let it. Nobody said it would be easy. They just promised it would be worth it. Applaud yourself. Love, chicken lady. And then they get a lifesaver that says you are a lifesaver. So every one of the people who rides gets one of them, and I get one of them every year when he brings them home. So, oh, here it is. Uh, I came home, and uh, I had my grandson find it uh, on the Internet. If you look up the uh, Act 5 of Don Carlos' libretto transcript, uh, the voice of... Uh, the voice of the dead uh, grandfather, Charles V, speaking either from heaven, it's unclear, or from some monastery where he's cloistered himself, says, my son, the sorrows of the earth follow us even in this place. The peace for which your heart hopes is found only in God. I think the peace for which our heart hopes is found only in those Brahma Viharas, found only in loving kindness, compassion, empathic joy, and equanimity. Oh, this is what happened. May everybody be at ease. Really, even if I say that, I feel easier. So please. Have a very lovely week. I'll see you next week. Lounge around. We've waited so long to have this building. I really just lounge around out there, have some tea, walk around, go upstairs, notice that they have um, smaller classrooms. Please bring, start to bring friends because I want to keep our numbers up over 60. Not on, first of all, I love teaching. Second of all, I like to have a lot of people. And third of all, I want to keep the class in here. <laughs> and I'll see some of you on Saturday for the Thousands of Buddhas Club gratitude party. Anybody lives in East Bay here? No, East Bay. Wait, wait, somebody right there. Okay. Anybody else need a ride? Sebastopol, somewhere? Everybody okay? We should really do that. Thank you very much. I don't know why that doesn't echo. We have to fix that. What do you think? I think it's a pillow. Let's see. Take the pillow and we'll see.
Oh, much yeah. better. Yeah. No pillows. Well, you can do vertigo, go, go, go. But you can do uh, may I be peaceful, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.